BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Tuesday, October 30th, 2018. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, new MacBook Airs, new MacBook Minis, new iPad Pros. Coinbase raises another big round. The UK has a new tech tax, interesting executive musical chairs, and why reCAPTCHA might soon be a thing of the past. Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. Just up the hill for me today was the big Apple event. I did not get to go, though several friends of mine did. Next time, Apple, next time. But for now, let's get right into it. First of all, surprise, surprise, Apple announced an all-new MacBook Air. And basically, this is the laptop that MacBook Air fans have been begging for for several years now, with a few caveats. The new MacBook Air has a 13.3-inch Retina display with a bezel that is 50% narrower than before. Also, it gets Touch ID, but not, note, not the Touch Bar because the touch bar sucks and it should go away. This baby, though, has 17% less volume than earlier MacBook Airs, is 10% thinner at 15.6 millimeters, and it weighs in at only 2.75 pounds. You can soup it up with 16 gigabytes of RAM and as much as 1.5 terabytes of an SSD hard drive. It comes in silver, space gray, and gold. It even has a headphone jack, so take that, iPhone. You can pre-order the new MacBook Airs today starting at $1,199, and it ships November 7th. As Joanna Stern tweeted, why would someone buy a MacBook now? And actually, I'm sure that that's something we're going to see debated a ton in the coming days. The MacBook Air was always everyone's favorite Mac, but Apple had let it wither on the vine by going in the MacBook direction. So was that a mistake? A cul-de-sac? Basically, Apple has given everyone exactly what MacBook fans have been clamoring for. This is basically a MacBook Pro in a MacBook Air design. Now for the caveats, though. The chips are dual-core Coffee Lakes, which Apple sort of breezed past in the presentation. So as Paul Therott tweeted, that might be the Achilles heel of these new machines. Those not-exactly-top-of-the-line chips will still get you 12 hours of web browsing, though, so the battery life we've come to expect from an Air, but again with a retina screen. However, if you buy one of these, you're definitely heading into hashtag dongle life for sure. There are only two ports, and yes, they're USB-C, but there are also Thunderbolt 3 ports, which can support 5K displays, of course. However, you are also getting what Apple calls the third generation of its butterfly keyboard configuration, so does that mean it's the problematic keyboard that people have had so many issues with on the MacBooks? That is being feverishly debated at this very time online. Again, it's weird because this whole event felt like Apple was giving people everything they've been asking for, which only makes people ask why they held these things back for so long. To that end, yes, 
The long-ignored Mac Mini got an update as well. The new Mac Mini gets Intel's 8th generation CPUs with 4 to 6 cores, up to 64 gigabytes of RAM, and up to 2 terabytes of SSD, starting at $799 for the 8 gigabytes of RAM configuration. The design is largely that familiar little box, but now with a space gray finish. And honestly, depending on which model of Apple TV you already have, you might have a hard time telling the Mac Mini from an Apple TV if you sat them next to each other. But the Mini has four Thunderbolt 3 ports, an HDMI port, and wow, I thought they didn't know how to even make these anymore, but actual USB-A ports as well. Pre-orders for the new MacBook Mini begin today as well, and shipping is November 7th as well. But probably the pride of place at today's event went to the new iPad Pros. As expected, the new iPad Pros come in an 11-inch and a 12.9-inch size, but they've been iPhone tend. So the home button is gone, the bezels are thinner, and the screens are thus bigger. But notably, there's no notch. They managed to squeeze the cameras into what remains of the bezels. The new 12.9-inch iPad Pro is physically smaller than the old one, but with the same screen size. It's basically the same size as an 8.5 by 11-inch piece of paper. The iPad Pros are now 5.9 millimeters thin, which is 15% thinner, thus 25% less volume than the old iPad Pros. With that lack of a home button, they got Face ID, of course, and the Face ID works in any layout, portrait or landscape. It's also got a magnet spot on the side to charge the new Apple Pencil. More on that in a second. Heads up, though, the port for this thing is now officially USB-C, a USB-C port that can support 5K external displays and supports not only charging this device, but also charging out. So you can use your iPad Pro to charge, say, your iPhone. And super heads up, there's no headphone jack. So I hope you like your AirPods. But back to the pencil. The pencil has been redesigned and has a side touch area to switch pencil modes with merely a tap. And as I said, it attaches to the side of the iPad Pros now via magnet, pairs wirelessly, and charges using inductive charging. What about the keyboards? Apple announced a new smart keyboard folio, but generally the functionality seems to be exactly the same, although it now apparently doesn't require pairing. Specs on the iPad Pros. They get an A12X Bionic chip, an 8-core CPU, a 7-core GPU. Apple says the graphics performance is a 1,000 times faster. Essentially, the GPU performance is comparable now to an Xbox One S. The iPad Pro can give you up to 1 terabyte of storage, and the 11-inch model starts at $799. The 12.9-inch model starts at $999. Orders can be placed today and will also ship November 7th. All in all, Apple said this was the iPad they had dreamed of building from the very beginning. As Harry McCracken tweeted, the iPad has come a long way since 2010 when Steve Jobs introduced it by leaning back in a comfy chair. It's such a lean-forward device now, end quote. A few other odds and ends from the event today that I'm just going to throw all together right here. No rhyme or reason. Apple says there are now 100 million active Mac users, with 51% of those being first-time Mac buyers. 
Apple says it sold 400 million iPads in total. The new MacBook Air and Mac Mini are made with 100% recycled aluminum. Or sorry, Johnny, aluminium. That new A12X chip is the most powerful chip Apple has ever produced. It's built on a 7 nanometer process. It's capable of up to 5 trillion processes per second. There was no AirPower charging pad announced. There were no new AirPods announced. And I guess my beloved iPad mini is dead at this point. Or is that just one more thing that they'll hold in reserve to make me say finally when it finally comes? Um, What else? That image they used in the demo of that guy sketching the Manhattan Bridge on his iPad that was taken on the roof of the very building where I'm recording this right now. Oh, and if you haven't gotten the notification yet, iOS 12.1 is out today. You're going to want to upgrade, if only for the group FaceTime, the new emojis, the dual SIM support, and plenty more. There was other news today, in fact, quite a bit of it, so let's see how much I can still cram in to today's episode. Coinbase, that 800-pound gorilla of a crypto exchange, has raised a $300 million Series E round led by Tiger Global Management at a post-money valuation of more than $8 billion. Tiger was joined in the round by Y Combinator Continuity, Wellington Management, Andreessen Horowitz, Polychain, and others. Coinbase says it will use this new financing to accelerate its global expansion, to offer more types of crypto assets on its platform more quickly, to create more utility applications for crypto, and continue to bring large financial institutions into the crypto space. Coinbase has now raised a total of $525 million from investors, and the last time it raised money, a $100 million round back in August of last year, it was valued at a mere $1.6 billion. So there is apparently no bear market for Coinbase. It's been an oddly busy week for gaming. Nintendo announced that it has sold 3.19 million Switch units just this past Q2, which brings total sales of the Switch to 22.86 million units. That means that the Switch has now officially surpassed the GameCube in total lifetime sales. This news came amid a quarterly earnings report where Nintendo also reported profits of $274 million on revenue of $1.96 billion. Nintendo has set itself an ambitious sales goal for this calendar year to sell 20 million Switch units over the course of 12 months. It looks like it's on track to do that, given these numbers and provided the holiday sales season is robust. It probably will be, as there are some blockbuster titles slated for release in the coming weeks, including Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, Pokemon Let's Go Pikachu, and Eevee. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID, and another line where a machine scans your bag. 
The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation, where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months, or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. Recently, the world learned the power of artificial intelligence, a technology cybersecurity leaders have been leveraging for years. Now, as AI expands and evolves, those same security leaders are left wondering where humans fit into the next generation of AI-empowered security tools and solutions. Arctic Wolf, the industry leader in managed security operations, seeks to answer this question in their newly published report, The Human-AI Partnership. Access the insights of over 800 cybersecurity decision makers in North America and the United Kingdom to better understand how organizations are weighing the benefits and risks of deploying AI tools. Uncover the biggest obstacles to turning AI and human engineers into a formidable team. Discover why the near-term benefits of large language models are being upended by a crucial flaw in the technology. And learn what the rise of AI tools mean for human practitioners moving forward. Get your copy today at arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. That's arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. This flew a little bit under the radar yesterday, but the Chancellor of the United Kingdom yesterday announced a new 2% digital services tax that will come into effect April of 2020 and will impact profitable tech companies that generate 500 million pounds a year in sales globally. The chancellor says the British government expects to raise more than 400 million pounds a year from the tax. That translates to about $512 million. Quote, The rules of the game must evolve now if they are to keep up with the digital economy, Hammond said in Parliament yesterday. Digital platforms delivering search engines, social media, and online marketplaces have changed our lives, our society, and our economy, mostly for the better. But they also pose a real challenge for the sustainability and fairness of our tax system. The rules have not kept pace. The UK has been leading attempts for international corporate tax reform, but progress is painfully slow. We cannot talk forever, so we will now introduce a UK digital services tax, end quote. In a sense, this move is spiritually similar to moves made by the European Parliament. In short, Britain is targeting the big tech players, not the small up-and-comers, because, well, that's where the money is and the power. Quoting TechCrunch, Up to now, taxes have been calculated on profits, but that is problematic because of how companies report profits. And in many cases, they are not recorded in the UK, even if the purchases of digital services are in the UK. However, many are already criticizing the tax as too low, describing only 400 million pounds and 2% as almost nothing to these companies, which are some of the most profitable and wealthiest in the world, with Amazon and Apple as the first two companies to ever reach a trillion-dollar market cap. 
More pragmatically, a UK tax has been talked about for years already, so this is just the start of how this might develop, end quote. According to Bloomberg, Snap's Evan Spiegel recently promoted Kristen O'Hara as chief business officer of Snap, only to change his mind a mere two days later and rescind the offer to hire Jeremy Gorman instead. Gorman had previously overseen ad sales at Amazon. O'Hara had joined Snap just in September after a decade at Time Warner. Quoting Bloomberg, In a statement to employees Monday, O'Hara told colleagues she is leaving due to changes in team structure, people familiar with the matter said. Even if Gorman works well in the role, the incident has eroded trust in Spiegel's decision-making as he is working to improve his leadership skills and as Snap is depending on new managers to help boost the company's performance, end quote. But quoting again from further on in the Bloomberg piece, since its March 2017 initial public offering, Snap has cycled through its heads of engineering, finance, products, sales, hardware, and legal. O'Hara and Gorman were competing for a position that would have helped replace Imran Khan, the chief strategy officer, who is leaving to start something else, end quote. Finally today, your interest in this particular segment may vary, but I did kind of think it was neat. Google has released a new version of reCAPTCHA, reCAPTCHA version 3. In case you're unfamiliar with reCAPTCHA, it's that sort of challenge thingy that you're asked to fill out when logging into websites. The ones that ask you to prove you're not a robot, basically. Version 1 was that distorted text that you had to identify and type in. Version 2 asked you to identify various pictures and, as a side benefit, helped train Google's computers to better identify images. But now version 3 runs what is called adaptive risk analysis in the background to alert webmasters of suspicious traffic. The system doesn't determine who is a bot at any point of entry to the website, but throughout the activity of a user session on a website. The idea is to get to a point where reCAPTCHA doesn't have to bug users at all to get them to prove that they're human. The version 3 API allows webmasters to specify specific steps users have to take to verify their biological bona fides and can add the system to multiple pages for more accurate analysis. Quote, the reCAPTCHA score can also be combined with other data collected by website owners, including transaction histories and user profiles, for an even more accurate verification. Google says the score can also be useful for training machine learning models designed to detect abuse. This new version lets you protect your site against bots and improve your user experience based on your website's specific needs, said Wei Lu, product manager at Google, end quote. So as I said, your mileage may vary in terms of finding this story interesting. Brian, it's great. We don't have to be annoyed by those reCAPTCHA forms anymore. Well, I get that, but... Also, think of this from an almost inverse Turing test perspective. I kind of sort of liked that computers had to ask me to prove that I was a human. I liked that the proof of that required some sort of proactive action on my part. But now they're saying that AI is now so good it can determine my humanity, or lack thereof, without any active intercession from me. The robots can now tell I'm not one of them on their own with no input needed. Am I wrong to feel vaguely put out by that, like I've lost some sort of agency over my own, by definition, humanity? 
real quick bit of book business before we go today. When I was at Bloomberg yesterday to do a segment on Bloomberg Radio, somebody told me that if your book gets 50 reviews on Amazon, Amazon really takes notice of your book and starts promoting it more. Reviews of the book. In all the bustle of the last two weeks, that's something that I had never even thought of. I checked last night, and there's actually only three reviews of the book on Amazon so far. So if you bought the book, first of all, thank you. But second of all, go over to Amazon and leave the book a review. Maybe review it even if you didn't buy the book on Amazon. But I do notice that if you did buy it on Amazon, they give you a verified purchase sticker. So I guess maybe they count your review doubly in that case. Now, going from three reviews to 50 is an awfully big ask. But you guys have really come through and surprised me before. So Mutant Podcast Army Assemble. Remember, the book is called How the Internet Happened. Do you have to have read it or even bought it to leave a review? I don't know. Shrug shoulders emoji, I guess. But if you haven't bought it yet after leaving a review, why not? If you like this show, I promise you, you'll love the book. Thanks for reviewing if you get a chance, and I will talk to you all tomorrow.